underlying truth about you today. Our, our, our hearts are stirred to think about the faithfulness of our God. Lord, how you've rescued us and given us what we don't deserve, Lord. It makes the soul sing. And we've heard that this morning, Lord. And your saints have lifted up their voices to tell you what they think of you, Lord. We pray that you've heard our praise. It's been pleasing to you, Lord. Father, now we want to break forth your word. We want to know what you have to say. We want to learn it verse by verse, word by word. We want to lean on every word that you have for us, Lord. What a joy to, te- to teach and study and know God's word in this way, Lord. Father, we do remember those who can't be here. Some have gone through tremendous difficulties this week, some through procedure, some have lost loved ones. Lord, others are in the hospital struggling, and we pray, Lord, you would Show your kind mercy, your great work of your position as the great physician, Lord. And Lord, we think of those who are watching online because they're not able, not strong enough to be here. Lord, please strengthen them. Lord, thanks for our missionaries around the world. So fun to be in partners with them. Such joy to talk to some this week, Lord, to hear how the work is going forth despite what's going on in the world, Lord. Bless them. Give them favor where they're at. Lord, now open our minds and our hearts May the word of God pierce deeply, and may we love you more and walk with you greater. In Jesus' name, amen. This message really is about the faithfulness of God. I have entitled it, Our Forever Faithful Father. And I want you to just think about the faithfulness of God for a minute. I mean, it's a definition of really who he is. He is, he's faithful. He's faithful. When everything else goes away. Our God is faithful. That's why we trust Him and follow Him and believe Him. John Favell said this years and years ago. He said, everything you lean on besides God will shift, including your waistline. (laughs) Everything's moving, right? Everything is changing. All things change. All things get older. All things decay. All things go south in a lot of ways, but not God. God is immutable. There's a trait of his faithfulness. He does not change because he does not need to change. In his perfection, he is changeless. And so we find faithfulness there. We find a God who we can come to, know where he's at. He's not hidden from us. He's not like the shifting shadows of of society and culture. We know his faithfulness. Spurgeon said it this way. The glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. (laughs) I love that. Now, we become unfaithful in our sin sometimes. But listen to that again. The glory of God's faithfulness is is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. Anybody been ever unfaithful to you? Not God. He's never unfaithful to his children. Spurgeon went on to say this, God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and faithfully fulfill what he has promised. You can bank on it. This is the faithfulness of God. Now I want to put this in light of the context of 1 Corinthians, and I don't believe there's no greater letter than this letter to the Corinthians church that demonstrates the faithfulness of God to those he's called into eternal relationship with his son. I think there's a clear demonstration that God does not abandon his true elect despite, despite their sinful failings. If you are 
God's, if, you, if he's bought you through his son's blood, if he has called you into an eternal relationship through his spirit with you, he will not lose you. There's an undeniable love in this book. In this letter, that it shows this undeniable love that God does not turn his back when we struggle. This, this church is struggling. <laughs> it's not hard to just do a cursory read through the book of 1 Corinthians and realize they're struggling. There's immorality right in the midst of the church and nobody's doing anything about it. And yet God loves this church. Certainly not everyone in the church is a true convert. <laughs> There's always tares among the wheat. And not everyone inside the walls of this particular church in Corinth was a believer. But nevertheless, God displays his unchanging love for a group of believers through this letter. God loves the church. The Bible says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Hmm. Anybody who was faithless this week? Maybe a, something happened, some unknown. You don't know how something's going to turn out. You found yourself with anxiety. You found yourself worrying about something. That's not from God. God's faithful. And he's faithful to the end because he cannot deny himself. He has said he'd be faithful. He's placed you in his son. He cannot deny that. And so I think this letter proves the faithfulness of God over and over. I want to show you five thoughts out of these first nine verses here this morning that teach that. Number one, we've got to see that the apostle is the one God called by his will. The apostle who was called by the will of God. I want to look at that first. This is an important thing. Look at verse one with me. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We'll start right there. Paul did not introduce himself as an apostle in every one of his epistles. The majority of them he does, but some he doesn't. But here in 1 Corinthians, Paul needs to establish from the beginning that he is writing and speaking as the agent of the Lord. The Lord has sent him. These are difficult issues, and what he's going to say is coming from the Lord, so he's establishing his apostolic authority. And this was not pride. This was not pride. We, we know Paul carried a very humble perspective of himself. Chapter 15, verse 9, he says this about himself in this letter. I am the least of the apostles. That's what he calls himself. Not, listen to this, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We'll come back to that text in a moment, but there you begin to realize that Paul sees himself as one who is a violent aggressor against God's church. He sees what he is doing is purely by the grace of God who saved him and now gave him a calling to speak the truth. But also, notice, it is clear that Paul was not using his apostolic position to gain honor or power. He did not want that. Many were doing that. Paul wanted this position so he could help people know what God's word is. He desired to know, have people understand where God was directing them. And notice he was not an apostle by his own appointment. Look in verse 1 there. As many of his rivals were, he was an apostle by the will of God. He's an apostle by the will of God. This was God's design. This was God's calling. He even marks out in other epistles that before his birth, before time where he ever came in, God had set him apart for this work. He understood the sovereignty of God. 
But before Paul deals with the difficult subjects of this letter, he first desires for the church and for us to understand what he is going to say about God and his authority and his love for us. Listen, this man had a lot of cards stacked against him. He had a difficult task. Number one, he was not part of the original 12. Of course, Judas falls away and hangs himself, and he's replaced with Matthias, who becomes the 12th disciple. And don't you think, would, and you imagine a church even like this, who attacked his, his vision, who attacked his, his looks, they attacked a lot, of him, a lot of areas personally on Paul, did not say, oh, who do you think you were? You weren't part of the 12. Doubtlessly, they took that shot at him. When Peter began to preach the first sermon of the church where the birth of the church took place, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, and he goes on to preach. And, and doubtlessly, they would say, look, you're not part of that. Who are you to tell us that we're in sin and what we're doing is wrong? He had some difficulties ahead of him, didn't he? There was also no evidence that Paul actually saw Jesus alive. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that when Jesus was on the earth, that he actually saw him when he was on this earth in his ministry. Paul was constantly opposed. He was constantly ridiculed by false teachers. They were all attempting to diminish his relationship with God and destroy his credibility. That's what false teachers do. That's what wicked people do. Diminish somebody challenge their credibility, then what they have to say doesn't count, even though if it's right or wrong. And Paul was constantly dealing with that type of pressure. Paul also was known as a violent aggressor against the church. Violent aggressor towards the way, the Bible says. And many churches were afraid of him. You remember in Acts 9 when he gets saved? He's on his steed and he's making his way to Damascus and the Lord appears to him. We'll get into that in a moment. And, and then he's sent to Ananias, and Ananias says, Look, this guy has done great harm to your church, Lord. And God tells Ananias, Look, he's a chosen servant of mine. He's a chosen servant of mine. And so he was. And the, and, and the Bible goes on to say in Acts 9 that the church was scared of him. Many people would not listen to him. And then Barnabas comes along, the son of a courier, comes and joins with him and much of the church accepted him from that, on, that time on. But, but look, this was, this was difficult. He was known by his past at times. That's difficult. Only, only the grace of God frees us from our past, doesn't it? Have you ever done something in your past that somebody holds you to constantly? It's hard. It's hard to have a relationship with that person. See, Paul had many cards stacked against him, but he knew, he, he knew what God had done. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, he says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, he has to make this claim because he's widely rejected from his past. Oh, but he knew God had saved him. The church needed to know that Paul had a special relationship with God as Savior. And that special relationship delegated him, inspired him to speak and write on behalf of God. And he wanted them to hear this message. The term apostle was being abused in Paul's day. You know that, don't you? There were people that were rising up. Anytime a great man like this would rise up, other people would want to implement him. You take advantage of it, take advantage of the church. 
And him, when he's in prison, it, it seems to happen the worst. Philippians chapter 1, 15 through 17, he says this, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also for goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress while I'm in prison. See, there's all kinds of false teachers out there. There still are today. People call themselves apostles all the time. The Bible says, no, they're not. The Greek word is easy. It's apostolos. You see how easy we get the English word from that. It's translated apostle, and so it, it means sent one. It applies to ambassadors and representatives and a messenger of some kind. But in, but in the New Testament, it specified men whom Jesus selected. Not the world, not even the church. Jesus selected and authorized them to represent the word to his church. And that was an extremely limited group of men, right? There's 11 disciples, plus Matthias, and Paul. These men were all commissioned by Christ to be apostles to his divinely chosen church. Well, all the divinely chosen apostles had to meet three major criteria. There's many, there's many other ones that we could identify, but I want to just remind you of three to make sure that you know Paul was not just asserting his authority somewhere. Number one, they had to be chosen directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not indirectly, not by them laying hands on somebody else. The apostles were not Timothy. They were not Titus. Uh, they were not the rest of the men that followed and helped and were part of the ministry. They had to be directly chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, God gave them divine power to do miraculous signs and, and wonders and, and mighty works that authenticated their calling. It's astounding when you read the book of Acts, right? Their shadows would pass over people and people would be healed. No wonder false teachers want that. Can you imagine having that kind of power? And if you're not dedicated to Christ in all things, where that would go, you see why so many false teachers and so much wild TV evangelism, people calling down all this, uh, you can see where this goes, right? So this was happening. And so God identified these men. He gave them tremendous powers. Men so much in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the book of Acts, they wanted to purchase this power, remember? They tried to purchase it. Oh my goodness, yes, Simon was one of them. Now, listen, the third one is they had to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They had to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Well, certainly we know the 11 are in the upper room, right? Judas has already gone and hung himself after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes through right through the walls, and he says, hey, here I am. And they're like, whoa, who are you? And he goes, I'm Christ in my resurrected body. Just like you'll have someday, you want to put your hands in my your fingers in my hands and thrust your hand in my side. Do you believe me? And by the way, I'm hungry. Wear something to eat. Those 11 seen him. Matthias was probably part of that because there was only a certain men that they decided could be apostles with them. They had to see uh, and be called by Jesus Christ himself. And then Paul, you go, well, what about Paul? Paul sees Christ on that road to Damascus. He sees not just Christ, but the resurrected Christ. That's who he sees. This qualifies him to be a, an apostle called by God. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 8 through 10. I talked about a little bit of this, but let me add a little more to it. 
just as Paul's speaking about himself. At last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, they're debating, they're questioning whether he has the authority to challenge them on these issues. He says, as one untimely born, right? I, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, kind of. I, I grew up in this Pharisee family that, that rejected Christ. But he says, but, but he appeared to me. And he calls himself, for I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We read that verse earlier. Now listen to this. <clears throat> verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I thought that was fascinating. I cannot undo my past. I can't go back and choose my parents. I can't un- un- go back and undo the hurt that I did, the deaths I caused, the imprisonments I did. I am who I am, he says. And then he says this, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. God took a wretch, a violent aggressor, and he made me his apostle. And he says, but I labor because of that. He he labored even more, right? He saw the detriment he had done to the church, and it it gave him zeal in the Spirit of God and strengthened him. And he, he said, I did even more. I labored more than all of them and then he said this, and we just sang this, Yad not I, but the grace of God within me. See, Paul was proving himself that God had called me. He has to talk about some very, very hard things in 1 Corinthians. He's got to deal with some subjects that you just don't even want to talk about. Incest? I mean, is, who wants to talk about that? Lack of church discipline, hatred, embitterment, factions, mishandling the table of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, just a myriad of things we'll see as we go through this. He had to handle that. They had to know he was sent by God to deal with these things. And by God's grace, the early church sees these apostles, these men who carry this authoritative, revelatory message as agents of God. They're carrying the very words of God to the early church. Now, notice at the end of verse 1, so Thenes here is raised up. We probably, we believe, many of us believe that he's probably the leader of a synagogue. We saw last, two weeks ago in Acts 18, verse 17, he's probably the leader of the synagogue who God saves. And I think that's really fascinating. I'm going to tell you why I think so. He was probably um, a, a professor, a student, uh, an expert in the Old Testament. And then God saves him through the message of the gospel that Paul carries into Corinth in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey. When he gets saved, now think about this, all the knowledge of the Old Testament that he knew so well and doubtlessly talked to others and and was was a teacher to many students, all of that Old Testament theology all became biblical theology. And what I mean by that is now he understood what that all meant. He understood from Genesis 3.15 on that this was about Christ. And this man became a leader in this church. He is doubtlessly probably one of the elders or some leader in this church. And he went from being a one who opposed Paul's teaching to embracing that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so that happens often. One of the things I love about ministries like Jews for Jesus and Um, other ministries that reach out into the Jewish community, when those dear brothers and sisters are saved, they grow rapidly because they connect all the dots. They go, oh, that was Christ. He was talking about Christ in the garden. Oh, Isaiah 53, we never knew who that was. That's Christ. 
And all the prophets, the major and minor prophets, the Psalms, the, the, the wisdom books, the law, all begins to come explode to them. Can you imagine this, dear brother, how much of an aid he was to the Apostle Paul? The Lord gives the church men. And so this man strived with Paul. They loved Christ, and they strived to lead this church, a Christ-centered church in a real fallen world. Look at our second thought today. Number two, a Christ-glorifying and gracious greeting. I love Paul's greetings, and they're always Christ-glorifying, and they're always a gracious greeting. Look at verses two and three with me. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice the epistle is addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Well, the word church is a, a common word. It's an ecclesia. It was a common word in that day. It was used always about a, a group of people, assembly of people. But where it stuck was as they took the Old Testament and studied particularly the Greek translation of it, which we would call the Septuagint, they saw that when the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, assembled, they were called the Ecclesia. So there they began to adopt that name. And the New Testament church has this affectionate name of the church, the Ecclesia, the Brotherhood of Believers. And so the name church becomes um, something precious. It's not just merely a religious group or some other group that gets together. It's a unique group set apart for Jesus Christ. And so Paul is addressing this. Notice in verse 2 it says, sanctified in Christ Jesus. See, the church is recognized as a group of people that God took out of the world. That's you and me. See, we were not part of his ecclesia, his church, which would be his bride, his home, his house, his people, right? We were not part of that. And so when he says this, that God set apart in Christ, he took a group of people out of the world, he set them apart for his own glory, and then he places them holy in Christ. Notice that in the verse sanctified in Jesus Christ, saints by calling. Well, this word saints, we get the word hagias. Many of you know that word. That means to be holy. Saints are called holy ones. That's quite a name. Do you feel like a holy one? In God's eyes, you are. I don't know what kind of week you had. And maybe you say, well, I, I don't feel holy. But that's not how God looks at you. God sees you as his holy children. He has called you, set you apart. He's flooded into your mind and your heart the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He helped you understand the depth of your sin, that you were hell-bound, that you were not part of his family. He opens your mind and heart to those truths. You confess your sins by his leading and direction, by his foreknowledge and love for you. Opens your mind, and you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he saves you. And he says, you're mine. He takes you and sets you apart, and now you belong to him. Now think about this. That's what he does with this group, and he calls us the Ecclesia. We're the church. We're his church. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, holy ones by calling. That's sovereign grace. God sovereignly calls you. How does that make you feel? Think about that for a moment. Do you know what you deserve? Do you know what I deserve? And now, listen to this, I'm called the Holy One of the Ecclesia? 
God's special, ordained, foreknown, called out holy ones placed in his son. See, that's a church. And and, then put this into context. We're talking about Corinth. There's incest in the church. there's, There's disobedient rampant. You know what this tells me? God loves his church. And he loves them a lot more than we do. Because people get frustrated with sin, don't we? He loves his church. He loves his people. He set them apart. Now, being set apart for God certainly conveys the idea that we should reflect a high moral character, right? We should, but we often don't. How was your character this week? Was it high and moral? Did it it show Christ in all of your actions 24-7 this last week? Probably not. Probably not if we're honest. But it doesn't change your position. See, God is faithful when we are faithless. And he calls you his holy ones. This is is what's so marvelous about salvation. This is why we keep preaching. I'm 38 years into this. I'm still excited about it. I'm a holy one of God. I, I can hardly sit still when I think about what he's done for me. See, this is a motivation Oh, Lord, I want to walk with you on Monday school because I heard about you at Sunday school. Give me strength. See, there's a great desire here, and this is so different. Again, Ecclesia could have been used of a a marauding group that riots and breaks windows and does whatever, right? That Ecclesia, that's not a very special, but when you put it about the church, people in Christ positioned our holy standing before God in Christ. Oh, it's a glorious word, isn't it? Good morning, Ecclesia of God. Good morning. You belong to him. The true ecclesia of God was positioned in Christ. And so we resemble the body of Christ. Hands, feet, eyes, nose, toes. This is the position. He's going to have to teach them this. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about that. They don't realize that they're part of the body of Christ. And what they do with one part of the body, it affects the other part. And so he has to work that through and help them understand you cannot live sinful and say you're part of the body, right? Don't bring cancer into this thing. Repent of sin. Turn from it. He's working with them. But he has to establish this gospel first. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Both he who sanctified and those who are sanctified are from one Father. Jesus is our sanctifier, right? He washed us. He set us apart. And now we belong to him. We're the sanctified ecclesia of God. Oh, there's nothing like us. I'm not trying to break your arm, pat yourself on the back. But let me tell you what God has done. There's nothing like us in all of the earth. There's no other group of people. All others will fall under judgment of God. All others will see Jesus Christ separate sheep and goats, and they will fall under the judgment of God, not as ecclesia. And here, this church, with all of its struggles, all of its struggles, Paul's reminding you were chosen, set apart by God. Boy, you have to establish that when you deal with sin, don't you? If you don't establish that, then you're going to go, well, I'm just going to try to work better, right? I'm going to try to do harder. No, the gospel gives us our motivation, how to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Now, once, uh, one time, one of our, I, I remember we won a championship, um, and our coach told us, because some were acting a little, um, not, not very well, and he said, hey, act like you've been there. <laughs> and I remember that, you know, and, and what Christians do is now we begin to act like what God has done. We act like children of God. We act like heavenly saints. 
there's something different about us, right? And you can see what Paul's trying to do. He's helping them understand the gospel. He's understanding that they are different than the world. Before he attacks all these issues and addresses all these issues with them, he wants them to know they are not part of this world. Christians are to be saints together. Saints together. Listen, here's how it works. You and I go home. We confess our sins. We walk with the Lord. We read his word. We believe the Bible. We, we die to sin daily. We work on those things, right? And then we come back, and each one of us have been walking with the Lord, and we come together, and now we resemble the body of Christ. It, it's a beautiful thing. He's trying to deal with it. He wants each one of them to die to sin, walk with sin, so that the body of Christ will represent Christ. And so he sets up this beautiful teaching as the body of Christ. Now, look, he wants them to know they're, they're more than something of just this church in Corinth. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. He says, With all who are in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. See, it's easy to say, oh, you know, hey, we're over here at Riverbend, and, you know, we're doing our own thing, and, and we're walking with God, and we're doing all this. God wants us to know, and he wanted the Corinthian church to know, you are part of something so much greater. This week I talked to one of our missionaries who, who had COVID and almost died. And I'd been praying with him. I called him on Friday to check on him. And um, he said, I just didn't want to bother you. And I said, oh, dear brother, when you're sick, we're sick. When you're hurt, we're hurt. Please share those truths with us. See, we're part of something greater. Corinth Church just thought, well, we're over here. Yeah, we got our few problems over here. But what does this matter? You are part of the universal body of Christ. See why it's so important that we confess sins, that we're, our church individually and corporately walks with the Lord because we're part of something so great. We're part of a group down through the millennia, right? We're down through the ages from Adam all the way through the Old Testament saints who believed that God would deliver them from their sins all the way through the New Testament 2,000 years of people who confessed Jesus Christ. We are part of that. So we walk with God, Right? We believe in him. We, we, we confess our sins so that we can with everybody call out the glory. Remember, the name of the Lord. We're part of the glory of the Lord. We're part of his ecclesia. I find it interesting that before the Lord called the Corinthians to the carpet, right? He defines their position in Christ. We try to do that in counseling. Sometimes you'll come in and, and you have a difficult issue. You've been in sins. There's been an issue and God has moved you to want to deal with that. We're going we're gonna to work through the gospel with you. Because if we just tell you, hey, you shouldn't do that. Go try to be better. Well, you've already been trying to do that. <laughs> and it didn't work. So the goal is to bring you in. Say, hey, here's what Christ has said about us. Here's what he says about marriage. Here's what he says about relationships. Here's how he says to conduct ourselves. And here's the motivation he gives great motivation for us to live the Christian life. And so I think that's so fascinating. Before he ever deals with the fraction, boy, if your identity is somewhere, come next week, because if it's not in Christ, that's what he's going to deal with. Before he deals with their identity problem they had, he says, here's the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. Notice verse 3, as he takes that previous statement and flows into verse 3, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, 
Grace is one of the most descriptive words of God and his people. Listen, we serve a gracious God. Do you believe that? Or do you have a view of God that he's up there and he doesn't like you and he's waiting to hammer you? A lot of people, a lot, a lot of Christians have that view of God. That's a false view. God is a God who is faithful and he's gracious. I mean, think about it. He does not give us what we deserve. He would be perfectly just to cast Scott into eternal hell forever. I'm deserving of that because the wages of sin is death. He is gracious from the beginning of my relationship. When I first met him, the day he opened my mind and heart to him in salvation, he shows his grace. So what kind of people should we be? Gracious. Are you gracious with one another? You know, it's easy to be gracious with you. You walk in, you, I love you, and we see each other. Hey, how are you doing, Pastor? Yeah, it's a little harder to be gracious with the one I lived with for 33 years. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the gospel goes into action. It's gracious when there's an issue between us, right? It's hard. when there's a, we got, That's where grace has to be in, uh, imposed. We have to impose grace there. Oh, God, help me be kind and considerate. Help me listen to this person. Help me understand the differences they may have. And, and the Lord, take your grace. Lead us to the word of God so we can solve this problem. See, this is the descriptive nature of God. He's gracious, and so his people are gracious. Gracious. Notice we also people of peace. Grace leads to peace, right? If you've experienced the grace of God, you are no longer at war with God. If you're here today and you're not saved, I have bad news for you. God's against you. And I can prove it. The wrath of God stays on them. Ephesians chapter 2. Tell you're saved, you do not have peace with God. But look, if you receive the grace of a gracious God, you have peace with God, you're no longer at war with Him. This is the mark of a Christian church. And guess what the problem was in this church? No peace. They were at each other's throat. Couldn't share a meal together. We're not kind enough to stand in line. They didn't have peace because they didn't have grace. And we're not exercising that. This book will teach us to be gracious and peaceful, loving believers. Third thought. The recognition of the gracious work of God to the church. The recognition of the gracious work of God to the church. Now we're going to see where this grace pours out. Look at verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, it's not uncommon for Paul to open one of his epistles up with, a, with an expression of gratitude. He does that often. However, like no other church, Corinth was plagued with an overwhelming number of sinful issues, right? So why does Paul say he's so thankful for them? That's, it's not easy. They don't like him. They don't like his letter. In all of the epistles, you can read them all, go back and look at them all. All but one, he starts out with, gratitude for them. It's Galatians. He has just left there. They had taken the doctrine of, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Judaizers came in right after him. He had preached Christ, and they said, oh, you can believe in your Jesus, but you better do this, 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 and this. Circumcision, keep this, don't eat that. And they started adding, and Paul comes back and writes a letter, and it's not, I mean, he doesn't even mess around. He just gets right on them right away because they're messing with the gospel. 
But here we have a, a church full of faction and all kinds of problems, and he tells them, I'm so thankful for you. And you go, why does he do this? I mean, can you imagine dealing with a church where there's an incestuous relationship in the middle of it and nobody's doing anything about it? How come he's so thankful? One of the things I really grew in my understanding this week was that though there was much wrong in the lives of these Corinth believers, there was no reason to doubt that the saving, saving, sovereign work of God had drawn these people to himself. He believed they were believers in many cases. And furthermore, he knew because Christ loves his church, Paul needed to love the church. And though there's wheat, there's tares among the wheat, Paul looked at them as a whole. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is his bride. And so I honor it. And he's thankful for it. Even the most difficult places we've been in ministry through the years, I am grateful for that. In each place, even though there were some times of trials and some real times of testing, there were believers there. And God gave us a love for difficult places at times, difficult churches. And I understand this. He loved the church of Jesus Christ. And remember, despite their struggles, there were certainly some, somehow they contrasted in some way different than the pagan world, right? You say, well, I'm not sure. Oh, believe me. You heard the introduction to, to uh, Corinthians the last two weeks. That was a pagan society. And even though some of that had made its way into the church, doubtlessly they were different because they were the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul believed that this was worthy of sincere thankfulness. Let me, let me just give you a point of application here. It's easy sometimes for us as believers, maybe some of us have been in the faith for many years, uh, we've studied, we've worshipped, and, and by God's grace we give him all the glory, we have matured somewhat. I think one of the traps that we fall into is is that maybe there's someone who comes among us, new people come into the church, or somebody gets saved, and, and we push so hard for them to get to where we're at. When we are a lifetime to get to where we're at. That's where this grace of God, this peace is patient with people. It doesn't mean we don't address sin or, or unbiblical thinking. But we're kind and we're patient with one another. There's, there's people in this room, there's people hearing this that are new converts or, or maybe coming out of deep sin that had plagued them for a long time and, or, or maybe deep hurt that has happened in their life. Our goal is to grow them, not shove them up to where we think they ought to be. See, I love Paul. He, he knew what he was going into. And he graciously deals with this. As we go through this, you will see, even though he's direct, he is extremely gracious. Hey, let's learn to be patient with one another. God is at work. Is he not? Is he at work in your life? He's at work in mine. Will you be patient with me? Be patient with one another. We'll learn that as we go through this book together. Mere human achievement meant little to Paul. Um, he, he was, he's not after that. He, he knew that nothing good is in the flesh of man. So Paul was looking beyond the human effort. He's looking at the grace of God, what it was going to produce in them. And I, and I love that. When you spend time with somebody, say, oh God, may, may your grace strengthen this dear brother or sister. Help them. May, may you use me as a gracious gift in their life. I think this is where thankfulness can come in, even in difficult times when somebody is suffering. Notice the word in verse 5, enriched. I love this word. Um, it means the believer gains great value in Christ. Notice he says that in everything you were enriched in him. 
the, the word has an idea that you have something far beyond material wealth. <laughs> you, have, you have the precious gift of Christ. It's priceless. See, in everything, he's, he's enriched you. And then he gives you a couple ideas. Notice what he does. Where you're enriched, he says, in all speech and knowledge. See, God's grace captures your speech. It's not a mistake. The Greek word is logos there for word. And he's saying, is God's grace in your words? He's enriched you. He's given you all you need. And in your words, there is graciousness that should come from you. The mark of a believer is we speak with graciousness. We live, live by grace. We speak by grace. We respond different. Kindness is, is certainly a mark of the character of God. It's a communicable attribute that he gives his children. We become kind. Grace makes us kind people. There's no, nothing more frustrating to the elders when there's somebody in the midst who claims to be a Christian and is unkind. It really defeats the gospel, right? In some way. I can't defeat the gospel, but it, it sure um, taints the message. We should be the most kindest people on the earth. You go, well, you know, it's just this new generation. Uh, be careful. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace. There's a problem back then. Man does not think with the gospel at times. Christians don't think with the gospel sometimes. We let come out of our mouth what's on our heart. Our hearts need to be drenched in gospel, drenched in grace, so that when we speak, we'll respond to each person in a way that's glorifying to God. Notice he also says grace increases our knowledge. Look, if you're just going to be a Bible student without grace, you're scary to us. <laughs> Your head will get so big, we won't get you through the door. You'll do more danger than you are any good. See, knowledge puffs up, but the grace of God humbles. And now you take the great knowledge of the Bible and you go, Wow, what a great God. Look what he did for me. And you want to share it with others and you want to live a life that's not offensive. And you become a tool for God to be attractive to Christianity, to what the Lord is. Because your knowledge now has led to worship. Peter, in his last letter he wrote, 2 Peter, he dies after this. He starts out the book and says this, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. His last inspired verse that he writes, he didn't write a verse, but the last words, 3.18, he says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge go together. And when we blend those together, oh, does change come. If you don't grow in the Lord, that means you're going to be stuck in your issues. Do you want to be stuck in your issues? Or do you want to have victory over them? Grace is the way. Understanding the grace of God, every time you open the Bible and you look at his great commands, they need to be showered in the grace of God. There we find hope. And so grace provides not only salvation, but it provides the good works, right? Not only by grace we've been saved through faith, but God prepared good works for us to do and find them and walk in them. And God's grace provides the right motivation to serve one another. One of the things that happens with legalism, which goes hand in hand with knowledge sometimes, is people get mean. And, and legalism doesn't serve. Legalism just points out what we don't like. Did you see so-and-so? Did you see what they were wearing at church? 
I mean, this is, I, it's legalism. It's just, you're so concerned with the outside. Uh, grace is a concern with the heart. So legalism began to hit the Galatian church. And so Paul deals with it at the end of the letter. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, now listen to this. You, for you, were called to freedom. Now he's certainly talking about justification, not going back under the law. But listen to this. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's legalism. Listen to this. But through love, serve one another. You show me people who love the grace of God, I'll show you people who are growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they want to serve one another. They want to come, they ask the elders, what can, how can I serve? How can I get more invested and involved with the body of Christ? Or, boy, you know, Scott's going long, we need to get out of here. There, you, know, you, you want to be involved in something, right? I know I go long, that's okay. I know you love me and you're gracious to me. Um, <laughs> but, but listen, there's something that's changing your life, Right? How can I serve? I'm part of something so much bigger than myself. I'm part of the ecclesia of God, and I'm part of the universal ecclesia of God. Hey, grace makes me want to love and serve people. Oh, is that the kind of grace you've tasted this morning? Peter said, sanctify Christ as the Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you and give an account for the hope that is in you. And then he says this, with gentleness and reverence. Ah, see, that's that's a believer who's tasted the grace and peace of God. Number four, the grace of God establishes the church now and forevermore. The grace of God establishes the church now and forevermore. Look at verse six with me. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Well, this word testimony, you could translate it witness. You could actually say the proof of Christ, right? Is that it established. It's, these are passive verbs here. This word for confirmed or established, it's passive. It means God did it to you. He established you, right? You remember when you were married and you got a little plaque? I don't know if you have this, you know, January 9th, 1988. Uh, you know, the Menez home was established, right? Well, oh, this is so much better than that. When God saved you, he established you. <laughs> he confirms you, right? You go, well, I had a confirmation in some church. No, 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 no. This is God who confirms you in his son. You belong to me. You're, you're established. Your heart has been changed. You've received the good news of the gospel. God's grace is now proclaimed. It bears witness in your life what God has done. And you are a witness. You are a testimony of Christ's work in your life. Wouldn't that be great if each and every one of us walked out of here and we, we were just this glowing testimony of Christ? They go, where do you go to church, man? What's going on over there? You guys just glow with Christ, with the joy of it. Look, that's what we're after. Even with our problems, right? Because we have problems. Oh, we could glow with the grace of Christ if we would learn to accept and walk in this confirmed, established way. It's a real legal term. It's forensic. It's used often in the court system back in Rome to guarantee something. God has guaranteed your eternity. You're established. The foundation can never be pulled out from underneath you. God's established that. So Paul is saying that the changed lives of the Corinthians, they should demonstrate the validity of this message. They should show this message. He's wanting them to say, you're not going to get over these problems, these difficulties you have, till you grasp the gospel and live the gospel. He wants them to see that because the message is true. I've been sent to give it to you and it's guaranteed to bring results. Look at verse 7 with me. So that you are not lacking in any gift, 
awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the results of God's grace in the Corinthians and in ours, our life, is that you don't need gifts for yourself. You use your gifts to glorify the Lord. Oh, man, is this an issue in Corinth. They're using their gifts to glorify themselves. Hey, let me go. I got a great prophecy. They're all about their gifts, but they're not doing it for the glory of the Lord. Grace helps us use those gifts for the Lord. The word gift is in the Greek is uh, charisma here. We get the word charisma, charismatic from it, charisma. The word gift is also used constantly for salvation. For you, for, for you see a gift from the Lord, for grace by faith. Uh, grace and faith are both gifts from the Lord. So the word is used when it talks about salvation. It's also used of God's good gifts in general. He gave some the ability to speak and some the ability to serve. And, and it goes down through Romans chapter 12 and so many different gifts. It's often used there. It's also used as special equipping gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit endows people to serve the Lord. He gives you gifts to serve the Lord. And it's even used of speaking in tongues, particularly in this time. These were gifts God gave them to expose the glory of God before the completion of the canon. Now, only the apostles and a few other individuals spoke in such a way that they glorified God, and it was miraculous. So Acts chapter 2, verse 6, the Spirit comes, and the, the sound of rushing water comes in, and all of a sudden these apostles stand up, and they preach, and everybody hears it in their own language. Absolute miraculous. God gave those gifts for the edification of the church, not to be used for their own sake. So God had clearly enriched their lives, right? They didn't have any lack of spiritual gifts. God had given them everything they needed. But these gifts were to be used for the glory of God. And then look at this. They're used for the hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you worked in nursery or children's ministry first service. You probably didn't, but I want to push you a little bit. You probably didn't go down there and said, I'm going to hold a two-year-old because Jesus is coming back. <laughs> but that's actually what the Bible's trying to teach us. Is that we serve the Lord because he's coming back. He's coming back. Look at the verse. You've been enriched with all this speech and knowledge. You've, you've had this testimony of Christ. You've been established. You haven't lacked any gifts. And that causes you to wait eagerly for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we serve each other with that grace and peace, that says, boy, I can't wait to see what this looks like in heaven. Hayward will say that every once in a while when we sing, and everybody's singing from their hearts, and, and you can sense it in the building, and the Spirit of God just moving us to sing together. He goes, man, can you imagine what that's going to sound like in heaven? See, everything we do is looking forward to the great revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's grace should constantly cause us, as we serve the church, to eagerly await the return of Christ. That's what mercy and peace does for us. And the Corinthians were to serve that way. They were to serve the Lord and each other. Instead, what were they doing? They were serving themselves. And there wasn't much hope. Look at verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, notice Paul once again uses the same verb, passive verb, confirm, establish, secure, guarantee. So Christ has enriched their lives, given them grace in everything they do to serve him and each other. They see believers 
now pointing themselves towards the end, desiring, desiring to finish the race, even during difficult times, even during disobedience in the church, and even in persecution and in a fallen culture, they were to press on because God had guaranteed everything they need. He said that Philippians the same thing. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, excuse me, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a what? A good work in you will perfect it. Oh, what a great word. He will perfect it. He'll take all of those good works that he's done in your life. Good work meaning first he saved us, then the result of our salvation are these good works. He'll bring that to perfection, to glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the day he returns. Now, this is a fascinating thing. It's a foretaste of things to come when we serve the Lord. Because it's his day, the day of the Lord, he confirms, establishes you, does this because he made you blameless. Notice that in the verse. We're blameless. The word's amazing. It means above reproach. The older English word that you used to put in here was called unimpeachable. You are unimpeachable. Satan can't impeach you. He can't remove you from, from the kingdom of God. Your sins, even after salvation, can't unimpeach you, can't cause you to be, blame, be blamed, right? You are blameless. God says, you are blameless before me. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 33. Now listen to this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It isn't a question. It's a statement. Nobody. Because God declares righteous. He declares us righteous. And so in this grace and peace, we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Last thought here, number five. Faithful, the faithful God who grants fellowship with the king. Mm. I love this verse. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. You should just mark that in your Bible. Just that little phrase. We need to remind ourselves of that, right? God is faithful. Pastor Brian read from Psalms 100, and you find that faithfulness of God in that verse. And he, he challenges us in a call to worship, but God is faithful. And notice this, through whom you were called, kaleoed, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is a forever faithful father. And the truth of these previous verses is based on the faithfulness of God. He establishes you, he confirms you, he calls you, he makes you blameless, he makes you long for the coming of Christ. This shows his faithfulness. And from the beginning, God promised to rescue his elect. From Genesis 3.15, he said, I'll crush the head of the serpent. He promised. And he who is faithful keeps his promises. And so Paul just tells this wayward church, God is faithful. See, it's because of the character of our faithful God that he has called Christians of Corinth and every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ to be in fellowship with his son. To be in fellowship. It's quite a term. He's, he saved you because God wanted to save you. He keeps you saved because God won't change his mind about you. So he faithfully keeps you. And then when he keeps you, he puts you in his son so you'll never be lost. And though you were lost and blind and undeserving of eternal life beforehand, he takes you because he's faithful, he saves you, and he places you in his son so you can never be lost. And so when he sees you, he sees a son. And when he sees a son... He sees you. So that's salvation. That's salvation that cannot be robbed. The word fellowship, of course, here in the Greek is koinia. You know that word. It carries the idea of a shared interest. You have a shared interest. 
in Jesus Christ. Carries the idea of a shared community life. We're in a community life now. To be in koinonia with Christ is to be in an unbreakable bond, a fused partnership, and it is the true doctrine of oneness. I am one with Jesus. And if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, where am I positionally? I'm there with him. See, this is the beautiful teaching of Christianity. Where I am, Jesus said, you will be there also. It's an unbroken fellowship now. It's true oneness. It's what marriage is supposed to look like. Christ and his church, this beautiful oneness. Everything they share together in Christ, that's who we are. And here, this church that had so many struggles, he says, look, you have a fellowship with Christ. All this sin can be beat. It needs to be confessed. It needs to be dealt with biblically. But you have a fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. When he closed out his letter to the Thessalonica church in chapter 5, verse 24, he said this. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Brothers, sisters, press on. God is faithful. And you have an eternal bond in his son that can't be broken. He's worth living for. Even though you may have some difficulties in your life and you're going through things you never thought you went through, maybe you have a relationship issue going on, I don't know what it is. God is giving you the grace to get through it because you're his child and you're in fellowship with his son. Father, we just get overwhelmed with this truth. Left to ourselves, we would never experience any kind of this level of love. We could chase the things of the world and find temporary happiness, Lord, but we could never have eternal security like this. Lord, sin so often robs the view of this. There's doubtlessly people here hearing this, uh, hearing my voice either online or, or here today that sin has really dulled their ears towards the truth. I pray this morning, Lord, that the word of God would pierce through that. If they are saved and they truly have been saved by God's sovereign grace, Lord, I pray, Lord, that the struggles that they go through, Lord, would would dissipate as they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You would give them grace and their consequences even, but they would run to you, Lord, and find grace and peace. And we would use our gifts to serve and look forward to your return, Lord. And so, Father, I pray for those who are hurting in here. That you would cause them to look to the grace that is provided through Jesus Christ. For those in here who, by God's grace, have a consistent walk with the Lord, may we walk together, Lord. May we be the church of Jesus Christ at Riverbend. A church functioning together, arms and legs swinging, running for the glory of Christ, all working in concert to bring Him glory, Lord. Help us be that church. Help us root out sin and deal with things that are not supposed to be here, Lord. And and Lord, lean upon your grace and mercy to deal with those things, but yet be right with you as a church. And so we will honor you, Lord. So Father, there's much to learn from this letter to the Corinthians, Lord. And we pray that we would be first in line. Riverbend would be first in line to learn of the mercy and grace of God. And deal with sin so we can experience the full joy that you have for us. Lord, thank you for this time together. Bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for a quick benediction as we close?
I love writing these benedictions. Listen along as I read this to you. It is a prayer in a sense. Oh, gracious and faithful Father, thank you for shining your grace and light into our hearts despite our depravity. Thank you for setting us apart and giving us a holy standing through your calling. Thank you that we have, that we have the ability through your Son's finished work to allow grace to capture our speech and our knowledge. Thank you for the gifts your grace has granted us to serve you and to serve one anotherly as we eagerly wait for your son's return. And thank you, Father, for the eternal bond of blameless fellowship with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May this motivate us to live for you until we see the face of Jesus. Amen.